0: This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016,
1: CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support
0: from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks,
1: including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters,
0: visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First time listeners and longtime listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversations. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Jared Bias. He's the co-host of The Bible for Normal People. He's a former megachurch pastor and professor of philosophy. He has a new book out, Love Matters More. Jared, thank you for joining the conversation.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So we know the voice of wisdom behind the podcast, uh, but let's get to know you a little better. What would you want us to know about you behind your work?
1: Uh, well, I, I grew up in a small town in Texas and come from a Southern Baptist background primarily and then in Presbyterian. And so I think for me, w- importantly, Uh, I grew up taking the Bible very seriously, and it was definitely a major part of of my upbringing and how I thought about myself and the world and God, and uh, then kind of had this journey uh, to different uh, denominations, different expressions of Christian faith, different parts of the country, uh, you know, Philadelphia, Arizona, um, Virginia, and so have seen a lot and have been able to uh, gratefully be exposed to a lot.
0: So, as I mentioned before, um, you know, in the opener, you were a uh, pastor of a fairly substantial church, uh, but now you write books and host podcasts. Walk us through that shift in your life.
1: Uh, yeah. So, I was uh, a pastor for a number of years. And then, you know, it's interesting because when you're trained to be a pastor, you think that's what you're going to do your whole life. And then you realize also you have that scary moment where you realize that's the main thing you're trained to do. And, um, you know, I I had to wrestle with different, uh, I think, different disagreements with other people on the staff where I was a church, as well as uh, some of the leadership and and all that goes into to leading a church, which is very complicated, and I think now, looking back, I have a lot more sympathy for how complicated and complex that process is and, and difficult, and yeah, so um, went through uh, a time of figuring out what I was going to do I was a pref- uh, professor for a while taught philosophy and and biblical studies at a university and uh, then you know reconnected with with Pete who was a a professor of mine and we had kind of gone through a similar process he through his job at a seminary me through my job at a church so we connected over figuring out this, uh, what I think a lot of people now would call like a deconstruction process or a, a time of doubt and question, not just uh, theologically in terms of our belief, but also trusting uh, institutions and leadership and how how do we navigate this? And and the more I am a part of this podcast and and writing these books and talking with people, the more I'm recognizing those are intertwined. And that's the pastoral work is it's not just in our heads. It's not just beliefs but it's also relationships and those can't be separated a lot of times.
0: Well, you know, you guys do this podcast together and, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, pretty much, uh, anyone I talk to when when I'm talking to them about what podcast you're listening to, of course they give the, um, you know, they're listening to ours, you know, wink, wink, but, um, you know, they always mention y'all's podcast. So what kind of fruits are you seeing from, from your good work?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's been a surprising thing because I think Pete and I really are, are nerds at heart. We like the biblical scholarship side of things. We like to learn insights and learn from uh, scholars who are doing really great work. But I think the the fruit has been really this community of people who are starting to find a place where they can be open and open people of faith to have questions about, whether that's science and faith and how those integrate and relate or its ethics and how the ethics of the bible relate to some of the things that we're facing today not just from uh you know maybe the what's in the bible is a little questionable but also just is it relevant and how do we help the bible be relevant for the things that we're facing today and there's a community of people who feel that they don't have a place for that. They, their church isn't a safe place for that. Their families aren't safe places for that. So we have a number of people who are on our we have a lot of uh, different ways to interact as a community. And some of those spaces, they ask very clearly and directly to to remain anonymous because they don't want to be found out. And that's a, a sad realization and revelation for me that we have this uh, religion and this faith that's built on love, supposedly, and yet we have this growing number of people who are afraid to be themselves and open and honest about what they're going through. And, you know, that's, I think, a sad indictment of of kind of where we've come in some ways. And that's not to paint a broad brush or to be too generalized. But I think there's a lot of people in that. And so the fruit has been, you know, we've stumbled into hopefully being a safe place for those questions. And just letting people know it's okay just be you and you know faith is a is a journey it's not a destination that we get to and then have to protect um at all costs in our you know hold up in our uh, fortresses but it's a journey we're walking on and we take two steps forward and one step back and and that's okay
0: in the fall you uh you released love matters more how fighting to be right keeps us from loving like jesus Uh, This book is an invitation to rethink our insistent pursuit of being right at all cost to the neglect of how we treat, objectify, and scapegoat our neighbors. You wrote, faith is not certainty in what we know, it's confidence in who we know. If we had absolute truth, we wouldn't need to have faith in God. Walk us through the inspiration for this book.
1: Yeah, so the the book comes from Having a lot of conversations over a lot of years, especially when I was a pastor with, frankly, a lot of women, a lot of older women who, you know, I was trained to believe that what we believed was so foundational and so important. And we had to get our theology right. We had to get the beliefs right. And that was the heart and center of, of Christianity was we get our beliefs right. And the most loving thing we can do is make sure that other people believe the right things because otherwise God will be mad at us or we end up in hell or or whatever that is. And I had these women in in my congregation and just throughout my life who resisted that. So I would come to them and I would try to tell them, plead with them, listen, you got to understand the nuances of whatever that happened to be, predestination, whatever the hot topic of the time was in my own mind. We had to be you had to be informed on that because it was really important. And I had convinced myself step by step that each of these things were so important and everything tied together. And they would just sort of wave their hand and say, you know, that's above my pay grade. I don't really understand all that. And yet when I looked at their life, they were often the most loving and caring and compassionate and Jesus-like people in the congregation. And so there was a disconnect for me. I was had some cognitive dissonance. And I'm grateful that eventually what won out was this idea that maybe the getting the facts right and getting our beliefs right, not that they're unimportant, but they're actually not the goal. They're actually a tool to something bigger and higher. And some people can get to that goal, which is to be loving and to love our neighbor as ourselves and love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. They can get to that with less of the tools. They they have an intuition or they have a gift. They have an ability. And you know, I didn't. I, I kind of had to kind of figure it out and stumble along in that over a long time. But recognizing that truth is the is the not the goal, but the tool was pretty revolutionary for me, just in my own personal life and my faith journey.
0: In the book, you call readers to a nuanced life of love, patterned after Jesus. Uh, define love for us.
1: So in the book I define love, I I borrow from M. Scott Peck, or I I actually borrow from Bell Hooks, who borrows from uh, Scott Peck here, in that the love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. And that's what I think is important when we think about this, is how do we extend ourselves to nurture our own and or another person's spiritual growth? And that becomes the the beacon for which we identify and and judge our behaviors and actions
0: and and all of the things that we will put into a life well lived one thing is abundantly clear from from your writing and your argument is that it is grounded in scripture and and yet those that might push back on what you were saying would also argue that um, they're coming from a foundation of scripture um, so I asked this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but but who's right?
1: Well, and, and, you know, to answer a little tongue-in-cheek, the challenge with the Bible sometimes is it might say various things, and there we both might be right, and that's part of the challenge of biblical interpretation, is the wisdom to know how we interpret the Bible. And of course, the, the great example of this is in, in Proverbs chapter 26, which Proverbs is in itself designed to be a little provocative in this way, but we have these back-to-back you know, proverbs that are contradictory, answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes. And then the very next verse is, don't answer a fool according to his folly, um, lest you be like him. And so the question is, well, which one of those, you know, what's the biblical way? It's like, well, those are both in the Bible. It, it takes wisdom to know which situations to apply when and where. So, you know, we have, but with, when it comes to this, though, I think what most people assume is there's this phrase in the Bible, you know, telling the truth in love. And that becomes, I think, the the proof text by which we then filter a lot of the rest of the Bible. It, and it's just one verse. And I would actually even argue there in Ephesians 4, because th- that verse was something I had to really wrestle with in the book, and, and I had to figure out what the context was about. And in chapter 4 in Ephesians, we actually have another part of what we're supposed to do in love, and it's in chapter four, and it's right before that, actually, and it says that we need to bear with one another in love. And so the more I read chapter four, the more I realized that this context of speaking the truth in love was wrapped in a context of loving behavior and loving action, and which one is the priority. See, for me, growing up, speaking the truth in love, the emphasis always fell on the speaking the truth part. And if you can do it in love, great. But in fact, we got so sophisticated that the most important part of love is telling the truth. So we didn't really have to do anything, quote, in love. Just telling the truth was the most loving thing you could do. But that's not how the Bible paints this picture. In my reading and in my interpretation, uh, it doesn't paint that picture of truth telling as getting all the facts right. So I actually started my study for this book by going through and looking at every single instance where the bible is translated truth the you know the greek and hebrew words behind that and looking at the context and asking what does the bible actually mean when it says truth and i was pretty surprised at what i found that it almost never talks about truth as being facts or beliefs in our head almost never maybe one or two instances in in thessalonians we do do we get that but literally dozens and dozens of other instances truth telling is wrapped into concepts like faithfulness and trustworthiness honesty authenticity commitment to doing good these relational ethical terms are how the bible thinks of truth
0: Baptist Seminary of Kentucky offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Not only the Master of Divinity degree, but our Pastoral Care Certificate, Rural Ministry Certificate, and Flourish Workshops for lay leaders are offered virtually so that you can study where you are. BSK alumni are serving in many different capacities in and outside the church as ministers, counselors, missionaries, artists, musicians, nonprofit leaders, and many other creative career paths benefiting from theological education. As the official seminary of National Baptist Convention of America International, BSK is committed to working for racial justice. All students are required to take black and womanist theology as part of a black church studies thread woven throughout our curriculum. Over 80% of BSK students graduate with little to no additional debt occurred from their seminary experience. Our flexible block schedule approach, the ability to study where you are, and the plentiful scholarship opportunities allow students to focus on training for ministry without the burden of accuring massive debt. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit bsk.edu to learn more about our areas of emphasis or to apply for one of our programs. So- you know, how do we decide which scriptures guide our life? Because there's a clear duality. I mean, you've mentioned some before, but then, you know, obviously in in the book of, of Proverbs, but then there's ones that are a bit more severe, you know, within the same book that proclaims love for a foreign stranger as if he's one of your own and stone those who commit adultery. So how do we decide which scriptures guide our life?
1: I mean, at the end of the day, we all have a, which I don't think uh, sometimes people like to admit, but we have filters that we read the Bible through, and we we all pick and choose. So it's interesting when somebody says, well, you're picking and choosing what parts of the Bible um, that you're emphasizing, and I say, yeah, of course, uh, we all do. It's, again, partly the Bible's fault, and I I say that a little bit uh, facetiously, but the Bible itself has these different perspectives and different, um, you know, viewpoints, and and so it, it's it, it literally in my mind the the more I read the Bible and the more seriously I take the Bible, it's kind of a logical impossibility to just do what the Bible says because sometimes the Bible says different things, and you know we see this even in the telling of of the law, where sometimes the laws change between the first reading in, in Leviticus and the second reading in Deuteronomy. So even the people of Israel are having to adjust and shift based on different circumstances and different contexts. So I think that's the first thing, is that the Bible itself points us in this direction. And then secondly, we also have to recognize sometimes that, like you said, there are some things that are questionable, In the Bible that we don't want to follow. The Bible isn't clear about when it describes something and when it's prescribing it. Now I wish we had a Bible that said, hey, listen, I'm just telling you what this guy did. I don't want you to follow it. It's clearly a bad example. But you know, it's important because it's part of the history of Israel and it's part of this history of salvation. So we're going to tell it anyway. And then, you know, there are other parts of the Bible that we wish said, oh no, now you should do this. Like follow this guy's example or follow this woman's example. This is really important but we don't have that. We just have it all there together and we have to adjudicate for ourselves which of these things are examples that we're to follow and which are maybe examples that we're specifically not supposed to follow. They're sort of bad examples or which are just neutral and they're just part of the narrative and part of the story. We have to be able to judge using some criteria for that. And so I think for me, Love is that lens. Love is that filter through which we borrow this, and and it's not that I'm making this up. You know, Jesus says this in in Matthew chapter 22 when he's confronted about what the greatest commandment is. He doesn't hesitate. He says, you know, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds this thing, which those two verses are actually in the Bible themselves. You can find uh, the idea that we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor ourselves. You can find those exact verses in the Hebrew Bible or in the Old Testament. But he adds something there and says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two. So if you go back and read those verses in the Old Testament, it doesn't say all of the law and the prophets. It doesn't say we need to highlight these two and privilege them above all else, but Jesus does. So we have to take that seriously, that Jesus privileges and filters the rest of the Bible through these two lenses, love of God and love of neighbor. And I take that very seriously. And other writers do too. We have it in in Paul in the, in the book of Romans. He references that if we love one another, we are doing rightly, we are fulfilling the law. James also calls it the royal law of Scripture, um, this love your neighbor as yourself. And then we even get this in church history where St. Augustine in the fourth century, in his uh, book on interpreting the Bible well, he essentially says, listen, if you don't interpret the Bible in such a way that it builds up this twofold love of God and neighbor, you're actually not reading the Bible as you ought, regardless of how, quote, right you are about it. It has to fulfill this law of love. So there is a, a, a biblical and a church historical precedent it's not some New Age woo-woo way of thinking about compromising with the culture and taking truth you know, and compromising it and making it relative and just having this touchy, feel-good, kumbaya version of Christianity. It's baked into the Bible. It's, it's baked into church history that love is the guide that we ought to be using for filtering how we read the Bible and also how we read the times and how we read our own uh, behavior and what we ought to do in each and every situation.
0: So the difficulty of this is there's the the yeah but people they might not be listening to the podcast but they're certainly attending the churches that many of our listeners might be lay leaders or clergy and it's the yeah but people that they they get what you're saying about love and all but you know the bible has these very clear statements fill in the blank of cherry-picked verse from leviticus or one of paul's laundry list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of god um you know what's at the root of their argument? Uh Is it fear? And 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 if it is, how do we do spiritual formation to the the rock steady bib you know, biblical quote unquote uh, rightness?
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. For me, in my experience, there is a lot of fear, but I'd maybe drill down and get more specific. And it's. Again, I I think we could talk about this for a long time, so I'm picking just one facet that I would be familiar with and have thought about, is this fear of being excluded. We want to belong. We want to belong to the kingdom of God in the sense that we want to go to heaven when we die. We want to belong to this group of people that have similar beliefs to us, which are usually our family and close friends, our church community. And the thought, the the fear of being excluded from any of those communities is really great. And this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, that the, the relational element of this can't be separated from the theological and the belief systems. And so if we can help people understand the idea that they are loved and they belong regardless, I think we can start breaking down some of these walls and barriers, because— you know, one of the best ways, for whatever reason, and I think it's unfortunate, the best ways for me to know, look at any teenage clique in a high school or middle school, the best way for me to belong is to exclude others. And that's a challenge because, one, it helps me to be the judge. I can stand over you and I can say, well, I know the criteria for who's in and who's out. That means I have the control, which means I'm going to be in because I'm going to make sure I'm going to do the right things to keep you in and we set ourselves up as as judge and jury of who's in and who's out and i don't think that's i don't think that comes from a hateful place i think for a lot of us i'm speaking of myself when i was this way which i was for many years it was because i was afraid i would be excluded and so i'm not trying to exclude people i'm just trying to make sure that i'm in because i feel really insecure about that the more i can accept maybe a god who includes and loves us unconditionally, as I think the Bible is quite clear on, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, as Paul says in Romans, then I can find that security and safety. I can let go of my need to ensure it, which for me feels very contrary to this gospel of grace, the idea that we have to do something to make sure we're in, and yet we say we don't have to do anything. But in a lot of the churches that I go to, You don't have to, quote, do any works, right? That's anathema. We don't want to do works. But we turn belief systems into works. Well, you don't have to do anything, but you do have to check these nine things off, and you have to make sure you believe those, which often just means you have to, if I ask you, do you believe this? You have to say yes. That's really what it means. It doesn't always have to be embodied in our everyday life. We just have to say we believe it. And that feels cheap to me. And it also feels anxiety-producing. Um, We have these gatekeepers, and I'd rather us start with the idea that we're included and then work through that together in this loving way, Now, which I would say, sometimes love is hard to express when it has to come out in terms of boundaries and discipline, and those are challenging, and they're messy, but they're not easy, and they're not black and white, which I think a lot of people like to make it out
0: to be. You wrote... True love doesn't say, I told you so, but says, you always have a place here. True love doesn't say, let me tell you my opinion, know uh, your choice uh, for the 10th time. Um, you know the difference between right and wrong. I don't control you. I trust you. Um, take us a little deeper there into the, the nature of this love that you're talking about. What well, ties to this idea
1: that Part of our definition of love, I think, needs to include the idea of freedom, that we're letting people be free. And um, tied to that is letting people make their own decisions, not feeling the need to judge those decisions. Or I think a lot of times, again, it comes from a good place of wanting to protect, which as a parent, that seems to be a real struggle where. It makes really good sense and good parenting to protect and to be very involved and to be very uh, connected to the decisions that my five-year-old is making and my six-year-old. Then it gets fuzzier when they're 11 or 12 or 13 or 16. But it's pretty clear by the time they're 25 or 30 that my children should be able to make their own decisions without coming to me. And at some point, love looks different. And we have to be able to allow our definition of love to evolve into allowing people to be adults, where they can make their own choices, where I don't feel like I have to control them or shame them into right behavior, but can let them be themselves. And to say, you always have a home here. You can make your own decisions. It's okay. Insofar as they're not adversely affecting me, then we need to have some crucial conversations, which we talk about in the book. But then the flip side of that too You mentioned also this quote, let me tell you my opinion of your choices for the 10th time, is I think sometimes we feel like if someone's making choices that we feel are sinful or wrong or leading down the wrong path or unhealthy, however we want to frame that, we feel like it's our personal duty to tell them that every time we see them. But again, I feel like that's not respecting adults' autonomy to make their own choices. They very well know your opinion, if you've told them 10 times, and they disagree. And it's not my job then to, again, shame them or guilt them or inform them. And a lot of times it's that fear, to be honest, if I'm honest with myself, when I tell someone that they're making a wrong choice every time I see them, a lot of times it's again comes back to my need to belong. And I have to make sure I'm affirming to myself that I'm not like them. As long as I tell you that what you're doing is wrong, I can still be friends with you because then I've made it clear that I'm not condoning your behavior. And not only is it for me, but it's also for the people around me. So if my friend comes up to me and says, hey, why are you hanging out with so-and-so? Or why are you spending time with them?" You know they do X, Y, and Z. I can say, oh, I know. I told them. I'm, I'm trying to convert them or whatever it might be. But the way, I've, the way of Jesus, I see, isn't one who's making sure that they know all the time what's going wrong in their life, but it's accepting them for who they are. It's not to say you can't stand up for what you believe sure, make sure someone knows your opinion on something, but do it one time and then move on and say, listen, you know, I don't agree. I'm not going to bring it up anymore. I love you for you. We're going to be in relationship. I want to support you in whatever way that makes sense for you. And we're going to move forward in this relationship, friendship in that kind of way feels to me much more loving and to be the way of Jesus than making sure everyone knows my opinion of all of your behaviors.
0: As you consider all the many ministry encounters of Jesus, where he shows radical compassion for the unwanted and the rejected, um, what encounter has been the most formational to your view of God and neighbor?
1: It's interesting. I wouldn't necessarily call this an encounter in the sense that we see Jesus interacting with an individual, but I think probably coming out of writing this book, the most foundational verses for me that I would say haunt me the most because I'm historically not very good at doing what Jesus is talking about, but I spend a lot of time with the Sermon on the Mount, and this is a pretty foundational piece of of what Jesus says and, and what we take with us today ethically. And interestingly enough, I started to read the Sermon on the Mount with this this set of verses that I would say I overlooked for a long time in Matthew chapter five at the end, where after he gives these uh, beatitudes, almost kind of the climax of that section of the Sermon on the Mount, because he ends with, therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's sort of this climactic moment there. The story that Jesus says, or, or the the verses there are about how God treats everyone indiscriminately. Which is it's a scary thought and it, it undermines what I think is sometimes this karmic view of God that we have. It's it's not it goes back karmic is, is probably uh to mix metaphors or to mix religious systems, because we have it in our Bible. It's the Deuter- what we'd call the Deuteronomic theology. Because if you read the book of Deuteronomy you see this everywhere, which is if you do good things, God will be good to you. If you do bad things, God will be bad to you. But Jesus upends this in this, again, haunting way in chapter five, where Jesus says, Listen, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. God sends the sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And Jesus says this in the context of a call to love our enemies. We have to love our enemies just as God does. And it doesn't mean feel good about our enemies, it means God gives. Gifts indiscriminately. If you were to take the God's eye view of things, if you were to look and set up righteous and unrighteous together, and you look at the gifts they've been given in their life, you will often not see a difference. And what that meant for me is for love to take hold and for love to matter more, could I line up all the experiences of my life and could people point out the people that I agree with and the people I don't agree with, the people I like and the people I don't like based on how I've treated them? And if they can, I have not been acting like God. I have not been acting like Jesus. And that has been very foundational and transformational for me to see how discriminant I make it. And it doesn't matter if it's because of my belief systems or I'm standing up for what I believe, or if it's because of my fear or my disgust or my discomfort with people who aren't like me. None of that really matters because... The call is to treat people indiscriminately, to love our enemies the same as we love our friends, and to do that because that's how God acts toward us. So that was, I think for me, that's been a transformational set of verses as I've walked through this a journey of of letting love matter more. And, and I want to be clear, I have historically been very bad at this, which is also a motivation for writing the book. Uh, I'm not at all trying to be high and mighty. I'm stumbling along in this, just like everyone else, and trying to learn as I go.
0: As you know, Sunday mornings at at said church can be one of the most exclusive hours in America. Uh, for those listening to this that are part of a church that's just they're just not there yet, uh, what's your advice to them?
1: This, you know, I'm part of a I'm part of a Mennonite church, and. One of the words that we use as Mennonites that I hadn't learned a lot before, but have begun to really appreciate is is forbearance. It's a value of the Mennonite Church. Forbearance is the fancy way of saying exactly what Paul says in chapter four of Ephesians before he tells us to speak the truth in love, and that is to bear with one another, to bear each other's burdens. And that has been a powerful idea for me. How might we in our congregations bear with one another's burdens, the burdens of doubt, the burdens of disagreement? How do, we, how do we bear with those together? Not how do we ignore them? I was a part of a congregation. I was a pastor. I was one of five pastors where we clearly came from different traditions, but we didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about our differences, and we called that unity. I would call that uniformity. Unity for me is where we can be in that messy middle, where we don't have to come to any conclusions, because the point isn't to come to a mental conclusion. The point is to bear with one another and love in the midst of our disagreement. And I think that's the task. That's the vision I'd like to set for churches, is how do we love each other in the midst of disagreement? Not how do we walk through this, make a stand, and make sure everyone who disagrees with us eventually leaves but how do we bear with one? How do we become that city on a hill for the rest of our country where people would be astounded and surprised to know that we have different political viewpoints, we have different uh, religious viewpoints, we have different belief systems, while maybe all centered on Jesus, all trying to ebb and flow and get closer to the life that Jesus would want us to live, uh, but there are differences. And to have people learn and be shocked and surprised, I think, in a good way that we can hold that tension in loving community would be, I think, a very powerful witness and something I think our country could really use as we would be maybe a prophetic witness to uh, to the way of Jesus. So all that to say, I think that's what I would want us to work toward, is this forbearance. And again, that's not uh, that's not authoritarian, that's not uh, you can be here as long as you keep quiet. That is full expressions of our disagreements, but full expressions with grace and compassion and love and forbearance. And I think that's really tricky. I think it takes a lot of practice on every individual's part. It takes a lot of self-awareness, growth in compassion, understanding our own shadows, our own fears. It takes maybe a lot of therapy, I mean, it takes a lot of work to get to the place where we can be in that kind of relationship, just with a few people we love, much less a whole congregation and community.
0: For those that want to stay connected with Jared, visit jaredbias.com. Follow him on social media. Of course, go out and purchase Love Matters More wherever books are sold. Jared, thank you for calling us to a truth that is always wrestling between being and becoming, between who we are and who we want to be.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I really
0: appreciate it. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.